Good morning, church. So today, uh, as we get started, let me just share with you, this week's sermon has been a hard one for me to prepare because it's talking about an action that goes against every impulse in my body of what qualifies as proper or right or wise behavior. And as we're going to see in just a minute, a woman comes, she dumps a fortune all over Jesus in such a way that a full year's wages are consumed in a matter of moments. It feels wasteful. If I imagine what I would have done in, if I was in the room with them as it happened, there would have been so much judgment in my heart towards her in that moment. And yet, rather than being shown to us by Jesus and by Mark as an example of terrible, awful behavior to avoid, she's put forward as an example to be celebrated and emulated. And it's taken a lot of prayer and a lot of study and a lot of conversations this week for my heart to to get around to how can that really be the case. And if I'm being honest, there are still big parts of me that have to work on seeing this as good and, and positive and not just to recoil at it. So as I teach today and as I unpack this passage, I'm just telling you up front, I need this as much as maybe more than anyone else. Today we're looking at Mark chapter 14 verses 3 through 9. Mark chapter 14 verses 3 through 9. And what we're going to see today is that extravagant generosity to Jesus is never wasteful. Extravagant generosity to Jesus is never wasteful. We'll look at the gift, the right choice, the other perspective, and living with this perspective. The gift, the right choice, the other perspective, and living with this perspective. But first, let's pray. Father, I thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your ways are so much higher than ours. And God, I confess my heart so often just has trouble accepting your ways. And I thank you for today's passage and the ways that it's been challenging me this week. I pray that you would speak to us through it and help us to know you and love you and have hearts to follow you more deeply because of this time looking at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start out by looking at the gift. Now this passage, it takes place near the end of Jesus' life. Jesus has only days to live. Where this Sunday is Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is already passed. Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's in a city called Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And while he's in Bethany, someone hosts him for dinner. And in the middle of this dinner, a woman walks in. Mark doesn't tell us the woman's name. But as she comes, she brings an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, my guess is that most of those words mean nothing to you. So I'm going to unpack them a little bit. Alabaster is this white stone that's very expensive. So the container would be quite pricey and valuable in itself, but it, it was nothing compared to what was inside it. So inside was a, a very thick perfume, like an ointment, but very smells very great. Apparently I've never smelled, but I've never smelled this. But it comes from a plant called the nard plant, which is grown in India and had to be imported to Israel from India. Now remember, back in the day, they didn't have free shipping with Amazon. They didn't have cargo jets or cargo ships that could make it easy to get stuff 
across from India to Israel. It had to be carried by people who were traveling there, probably on animals. And so shipping was very, very expensive. To get access to this perfume, you had to pay big money. Mark tells us later in the passage that this perfume that was inside this container was worth more than 300 denarii. A, denari a denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer in that day. So if you're working six days a week, 300 denarii is more than a year's wages. This is a lot of money. To give some perspective, according to the Hong Kong government website, the annual median income across all industries in Hong Kong in mid-2019 was 218,400 Hong Kong dollars. So this perfume was worth, you know, in today's money, something like 220,000 Hong Kong dollars. And she brings in this jar that's just filled with this perfume. In the past, I've heard this perfume compared to like a really fancy Chanel perfume, but realize this is far, far more valuable than a Chanel perfume. You, you could buy gallons of Chanel's perfume for this much money. And this woman, she takes her expensive flask and she breaks it and she pours this costly perfume all over Jesus' head. And as big of a sacrifice as this would be in our day, it was actually a bigger sacrifice in her day than it would have been in ours. There's a pastor named Paul Miller, and he points out that this, this perfume was almost certainly her dowry. It was the gift that she would give to her husband and his family in order to get married. In that world, women couldn't get high-paying jobs like they can today. Women couldn't own property, they couldn't inherit property, uh, it all went to the men in their families. And so for a woman, marriage was so much more than just marriage. Yes, there was a lifelong companionship, yes, it was how you got kids, but it was also your pathway to financial stability. It meant that you had someone to physically protect you and look after you throughout life. She, in this moment, she's dumping her dowry all over Jesus. She's essentially committing to stay single, to stay childless, to stay poor for her entire life in exchange for one moment of extravagant generosity to Jesus. And look how extravagant she is. She breaks the bottle. You know, some people have had this theory that you had to break the bottle to get the stuff out. That doesn't make sense because otherwise, how would you get the stuff in there in the first place? Plus, with something that valuable and expensive, you don't want to have to use it all at once, right? So you would have had some way to open it and get the stuff out normally. But she just wants to get it out faster. And so she smashes the bottle so she can pour it all on Jesus as fast as possible. She's holding nothing back. And she's not asking Jesus to marry her by doing this. No, she's giving a gift and expecting nothing in return. Giving a gift that involves sacrificing her ability to marry, her ability to have kids, her ability to have financial stability, sacrificing her future. She is being extravagant. And let me just ask you, how would you feel if you saw someone doing this today? Just giving away a year's wages to someone in a way that seems really wasteful just for the sake of showing that person love. 
Would you celebrate them and say like, that's, that's a great choice. It's the best way you could have used that year's wages. Or would you, like the crowd in this scene, say, what a waste. I mean, I have to say, I would almost certainly be in there with the crowd saying, that's a waste. And I've spent a lot of time this week just trying to think, what does this even look like in today's world? I don't know that I've ever seen this type of generosity. Definitely not firsthand that I can think of off the top of my head. And it's the type of thing that seems like you'd be able to think of it off the top of your head if you had seen it. The best I could think of was a YouTube video that I saw a few years ago with some friends. And they were telling the story of this, this couple. They were engaged to be married. While they were engaged, the husband was at work doing construction one day and he suffered a terrible brain injury that left him injured for life. He went from being a fully functioning human adult man to basically functioning as a child. And if you were engaged to someone and that happened to them, what would you do? I know I would be very strongly tempted to just be like, sorry, wedding's off. I'm getting out while I can. Haven't said for better or for worse yet. See ya. Have a, have a nice life. But the video told the story of how the fiance decided to go ahead with this wedding anyway. She committed for the rest of her life, or at least as long as this husband stays alive, to bear the burden of caring for a spouse who's functionally a child. She's never going to be able to have a deep emotional connection with her spouse. They may or may not be able to have kids, but if they do, she's basically going to be a single parent. She's going to bear a lot of financial burdens for the family, and it's probably going to cost her career opportunities. But she made this sacrifice because she loves him. And as my friends and I watched this video, it sparked a conversation among us. And, and this is what we were asking. Did she make the right choice? What do you think? Did she make the right choice by marrying this man? And we're not talking about ultimately her choice today, but it's interesting that that's the same question that's being discussed when this woman comes in and dumps her perfume all over Jesus. And the unanimous conclusion of the people in the room with Jesus as this woman dumps her perfume over him is absolutely not. She did not make the right choice. So let's talk about the right choice. Now the question of whether this woman made the right choice ultimately boils down to the question of ultimate reality and meaning in life. Here's what I mean. How we define ultimate reality and meaning shapes the lens that we look through as we determine whether or not she made the right choice. It shapes the lens by which we judge her action. And there are a couple different narratives in the world today about where meaning in life comes from. So in our 21st century Western society, we are taught that true abundant life comes through self-actualization. If you've ever studied a psychology course or learned anything about Maslow's hierarchy, that's what's right up there at the top, self-actualization. A successful, abundant life is about you finding what makes you passionate and finding what you love and finding what makes you happy. And that's how you're going to be your best self. And this narrative and belief that that's the path to true abundant life, it's so deeply ingrained 
in Western society today. That if you've grown up in a Western society, you've probably absorbed this message without even thinking about it. I know I have a lot of the time. And I'm not saying this message is all bad or completely wrong. Like on one level, it's, it's great for people to be doing things they're passionate about. The world needs more people who are passionate about what they're doing. And when people are passionate about what they're doing, it's this awesome reflection of the fact that like God made me with a purpose and I found that purpose that he made me for and I love it. But when this becomes the ultimate standard by which we live life, it can become dangerous. I know a lot of people who have struggled because they just hadn't found something they're passionate about. And then they say, there must be something wrong with me because I'm not a passionate person. Or you think about, like, in the States, how many grown adults live in their parents' basement because they just haven't found their passion in life yet, and the closest thing to it they found is video games. So rather than working and contributing to society, they chase their passion by spending 12 to 16 hours a day on the Xbox. They ignore contributing to society because video games fulfill their passion more than contributing to society does. So it's not completely bad, this self-fulfillment, self-actualization, but it's also not completely good. But it's one of the primary Western narratives about where the good life comes from that operates in the world today. And like I said, it's so deeply ingrained in most of us that we don't even think twice about whether that's controlling us and the decisions we make in life. And if we take that perspective and we bring it to this story to ask, did this woman make the right choice? The answer has to be no way. Because yes, she may feel really good in the moment about doing something kind for Jesus, but she's going to regret it. A few months down the road when she's single and realizes, I can never get married. She's going to regret this choice. In a couple of years when all of her friends are introducing her to their young babies and she's feeling the sadness of the fact that she'll never have children of her own, she's going to seriously regret this decision. And in a couple decades when her parents die and she's stuck and not sure how she's going to have be able to put food on the table for the rest of her life. She's going to look back on this as the worst decision she ever made. So according to Western society's narrative of life, no, she did not make the right choice. But realize that's not the only perspective that's going on here. There's another narrative of life in our world and in the Bible world that comes into play in this passage. In the passage, it's the religious perspective of the good Jewish people in the room with her. And on a lot of levels, I think this perspective has a lot of parallels to the narratives about life in traditional or Eastern cultures in today's world. See, in Jesus' day, the Israelites, they were very, very, very passionate about loving and obeying God. Because as a nation, they had disobeyed God in the past, and it had led to very bad consequences. So they learned their lesson. You obey God. You do what his word says. So they'd look at the Old Testament and they'd see in Proverbs, be wise with your money. Okay, we got to be wise with our money. 
They look at the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Okay, honor our father and mother. The Old Testament talks about God's promise to this family line. And so they would say it's so important to continue the family line. Get married, have kids. That's important. Proverbs, it's full of warnings against being foolish. Okay, don't be foolish. And then throughout the Old Testament, you see God's passion and care for the poor and his commands for his people to be passionate and caring for the poor. And if you lived in Jesus' day, there was pressure from society all around you to do these things properly because the welfare of the nation depended on you obeying God and doing your role properly. You had to know your place. You had to do your role for the good of the country. And then this lady in the middle of that culture walks into this room, breaks open her dowry container and dumps it all over Jesus. Now, what has she just done? She was foolish, not wise with her money. She dishonors her parents and all the work they've done saving up over the years to give her this dowry so that she can be secure in the future. She sacrifices her ability to marry and have kids. She's ignoring the poor. You know, Mark tells us somewhere else in the book of Mark, 200 denarii, 200 days wages, was enough to buy food for 5,000 people. She has 300 days wages that she's just dumping on Jesus. That's enough money to feed 7,500 people, poor people who need the food, whose survival might depend on it. Boom, ignored. By all the standards of her day, she is being a fool. That's why the people in the room look at her and say she's, she's wasted it, and that's why they're scolding her. How much does that sound like what we'd expect from a traditional or Eastern culture? Your worth and value in life, the path to true abundant living comes from knowing your role in society and, and doing that role properly. The goal is stability, don't rock the boat. And she ignores everything expected of someone in her position and does something that totally upsets the stability of her community. I mean, think how a tr traditional Asian parent would react. If their child went out and bought a bottle of champagne worth one year's wages of the parent's hard-earned money, using the parent's money, and then they smashed it open and dumped it over their friend as a bath. That wouldn't just make the parents angry. It would be a scandal. Everyone in town would hear about it. The parents might consider disowning their child. And that's exactly what this woman just did. In the eyes of the culture of her day, this isn't only foolish. It's not only wasteful. It is scandalous. It is the worst thing she could possibly do. Maybe not the worst, but right up there. And so regardless of the culture we grew up in, our default way of seeing this woman's act is to be just like the other people in the room. If we're Westerners, this is robbing her of her ability to fulfill her dreams in life. If we're Easterners, this is totally disrupting society and rocking the boat and causing a scandal and bringing shame on your family. Regardless of where we come from, we see this as an action that she will regret. 
which if you're anything like me, makes it really hard for you to look at her action in a positive light. And yet despite all this, the passage is completely positive about her action because there's another perspective at the table. And let's look at this other perspective. See, just as our hearts naturally look down at this woman and see her as foolish and wasteful, the crowd in the room does the same thing. They express their thoughts out loud to her and then another voice joins the conversation. Only this voice is defending her. We see this in verse six. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus sees her act as extravagant, but not wasteful. And therefore he says, it is beautiful. He says it is extravagant, but not, waits, not wasteful. And therefore it is beautiful. And what sets his perspective apart from ours? Well, I think there's two big things. First, his perspective is lived under the law of love. Here's what I mean. If you look at the life of Jesus, he's not concerned with either of our cultural narratives. He's not looking for self-fulfillment. He's not looking for fulfilling his role in society properly. He is concerned with, with two things, really. With obeying his father and fulfilling his father's plan for him and loving the people around him. Jesus' life is consumed with love for his father and love for his neighbor. I don't think it would be going too far to say that it, for Jesus, in his eyes, love is the ultimate criteria of success in life. For Jesus, in his eyes, love is the ultimate criteria of success in life. I mean, you can see this when someone comes and says, Jesus, what's the greatest command in the entire law? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And this woman, in one act, she shows, shows extravagant love to God and to her neighbor because in that moment, God was her neighbor. God in human flesh, Jesus, is the one that she's showing this extravagant love to. And if love, rather than self-fulfillment or fulfilling your role in society, is your ultimate criteria for success, an act that extravagantly fulfills the two greatest commands of the law at once it can't be foolish. It can't be wasteful. It is beautiful. So Jesus' perspective is lived under the law of love. And second, Jesus' perspective is eternal. You know, if our perspective is limited to this world only, if we believe this world is all there is, this woman's action is necessarily foolish because she's sacrificing the only future she has. But if there's an eternity, if Jesus is not only going to the grave, but coming out on the other side alive, then what she's doing makes sense because she's sacrificing temporary comfort now for eternal pleasures later. That's why the resurrection is so central to Christianity, because if it's true, it shatters every perspective that says this world here and now is all there is. So live for the here and now. As long as our perspectives are limited to the horizon of this world and what it can offer, this woman's actions will always seem foolish 
and wasteful to us. But when we see life from this eternal perspective, it's going to help us see her action more like Jesus saw it. We'll start to see it as truly beautiful. Jesus says her act is beautiful. He tells her later on all the legacy that she sacrificed is going to be repaid and more. He says wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Yes, yeah, she, she probably won't have children to be able to carry on her family line in the memory of her. But 2,000 years from now, in another part of the world, people are going to hear about her extravagant generosity and how beautiful it was. Plus, there's eternity, where she'll receive an even bigger reward. Jesus says her action is beautiful because he lives with a different perspective than we do. And with that in mind, let's look at how we can live with Jesus' perspective. Let's look at living with this perspective. Now, a little hint for you, something that I've been having to learn over the years and I'm still in the process of learning. If you're reading the Bible and Jesus responds to something in a different way than your instinctive response to that situation would be. Jesus isn't the one with the wrong response. So if, if your heart is still saying, yeah, but come on, Eric, it's so wasteful. Like mine has been saying for so much of this week, that's not a sign that you or I know more than the Bible. It's not a sign that our wisdom is more advanced than Jesus' wisdom. It's a sign that our hearts still need to be changed and reshaped so that we can live in line with God's word. And how does that happen? Well, first, by realizing the inadequacy and shortcomings of our default perspectives. You know, this individualistic self-fulfillment or living up to cultural expectations, they can't be the ultimate perspectives in life because both of them are limited to this world only. Neither of them has a perspective that sees beyond the horizon of this world and into eternity. You know, if this world is all there is, if there is no resurrection, then sure, live for just this world. But the resurrection of Jesus shows us that's not the case. And if ultimate reality is bigger than this world, we need a new perspective of true life that accounts for that bigger reality of the resurrection. So we need to start by recognizing our default perspectives aren't big enough to share the truth or to, to comprehend the true nature of reality. And once we do that, once we realize our default perspective is not big enough, we start to gain the proper perspective by remembering the extravagant love of Jesus for us. See, yes, this woman's act may seem wasteful to us, but let me ask you, which one is more wasteful? A woman who's one day going to die, sacrificing a few years of, maybe a few decades of comfort and stability for the sake of showing love to Jesus, or God, who made the world, stepping down from his throne, taking on human flesh, entering into our world, and emptying himself to the point of death. When you look at it that way, there's no comparison. It, if her action is wasteful, the cross is beyond wasteful. 
I don't think we have a word for what the cross is if what she did is wasteful. Because on the cross, Jesus didn't sacrifice money. He didn't sacrifice a few years of self-fulfillment. No, God in human flesh emptied himself, humbled himself to death to pay the price of rebellion against God for you and for me. He, he gave up himself so that we can have new access to God. And we can see in Jesus' response, the cross is weighing so heavily on his mind. Look what he says in verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus cannot see this woman's action apart from the context of the extravagant sacrifice that he is about to make in just a few days. And like at least with this woman's sacrifice, she was showing it to Jesus, to God in human flesh, who presumably had shown great love to her beforehand. But on the cross, God is showing an even more abundant and extravagant generosity to his enemies so that he could rescue us and make us his children and his friends. See, the reason Jesus can't see her sacrifice as anything other than beautiful is because it's a miniature picture of the work he came to earth to accomplish. And the work of Jesus is the most beautiful thing ever done. See, her action will always feel wasteful to us unless we see it in light of the greater sacrifice that Jesus was about to make for her and for us to give us a renewed relationship with God. But the more we learn to see the cross and the extravagant generosity God showed toward us as the most beautiful act ever done, the more we're gonna see her sacrifice as beautiful because the cross reframes our perspective. And once we get this new perspective and we're able to see the beauty of her action, what does it look like to live with that kind of extravagant love today? Realize love doesn't live just in the world of theory or of feelings. If I have all these warm, fuzzy feelings about someone else and say that I love them, but then they're in need and I have the ability to help them and I don't do it, I don't actually love them. If I have all these warm, fuzzy feelings towards God and say that I love him, but then I don't do the things in his, that he says in the Bible I will do if I love him, I don't love him because for love to be real, it has to express itself concretely in real life actions. And so as we think about how to love like this woman does, it gives us a problem because Jesus isn't here anymore. We can't go show the same concrete kind of love to Jesus today as this woman did. That's part of what made her actions so beautiful. Jesus says she recognizes the reality that I'm not going to be here forever. So she did this beautiful thing for me while she could. But we're not in that time anymore. We, we aren't living in that day. So what does it look like for us today to show this kind of love? And again, as I reflected on this this week, I was convicted by the lack of love in my heart. You know, I, I just realized I've bought into this self-fulfillment story so deeply over the years that anything that is going to be inconvenient to me feels like a barrier to me having true abundant life and I do what I can to try to avoid it. And most of these are small things. Like for a long time, Justine would keep asking me to get a dog. 
And I thought to myself, if we get a dog, I'm going to end up having to walk that dog on rainy days where I'd rather just be on the couch and I don't want that inconvenience. So rather than putting myself in a position where I need to sacrifice by walking the dog, I'll just talk her out of getting a dog. And I realize this probably may feel trivial to you. And actually, in that instance, not getting a dog may have been a good choice for our family, especially with baby number two on the way. But I realize that default mode of making decisions through this lens of what's most convenient for me, it's become in many ways a default mode for me. If I could foresee a potential inconvenience in a decision and I could avoid that situation, let's just avoid it, keep things simple. And when I saw that, I was really convicted. And so I decided to read through the book of First John because it's all about love. And as I was reading it, I came across this verse I've read and heard many times before. But I realized that I've almost always focused on the first half of this verse, not the second half. And the second half adds so much to the verse. The verse is 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the first half of the verse. That's the part I'm used to hearing, but the verse goes on. It doesn't end there. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The brothers is referring to other Christians, the other people in the church. John saying, if we really understand the extravagant love that Jesus has shown us, if we've really had our perspective reshaped by that generosity, then we will show that understanding by being extravagantly sacrificial and generous to one another. Paul tells us in other passages that, in, in several passages, the church is the body of Christ on earth. So that means as we're thinking through this passage, no, Jesus is not physically here today for us to show him extravagant love like this woman did, but his body is. So if we put those two things together, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. The church is the body of Christ. It actually gets pretty practical and simple. How can you lay down your life for your fellow Christians this week? And realize most of the time it's not going to be big, extravagant things like what this woman did. It's, it's more likely going to be a series of small, seemingly trivial things that eventually build up into a way of life. And for most of us, this is going to start at home. It's going to mean small things like at the end of the day, you get home and you just want to sit down on the couch and do nothing and relax because it's been a long day. But instead you offer to do the dishes so that your spouse can rest instead. Or it means taking time when you could be doing activities that you love to do and not doing those activities so you can instead be with your kids and do activities that they love to do. It's, it's laying down the things we think give us life for the sake of showing love and giving life to others. And it's not going to end at our families. It, you know, maybe there's someone in the church who's going through a hard time and laying down your life for them means calling them up and offering to meet up with them instead of watching Netflix, which is what you'd really rather be doing. And I don't know if you realize this, our church community has several families right now who due to COVID are separated and the spouses are in different countries from one another. What does it look like to show love to someone in our church community who's potentially feeling lonely right now? Could you offer to meet up with them? Could you offer to, you know, if they're stuck here with the kids, could you offer to 
watch their kids for an afternoon so they can just have a break. What does it look like to lay down our lives for other people in the church community who have real needs right now to show them this love? I'm sure if you stop and just think about it, each of us could come up with a list of things we could do to lay down our lives to show love to others. If you're having trouble doing this, just think, what is something I wish someone else would do for me to make my life easier? And then once you have that thing, ask yourself, who is someone else in the church who would appreciate me doing that for them? And realize also, as we, as we talk about showing practical love to others, the body of Christ is bigger than just the bridge church. Care for the poor, especially poor Christians, it's a big part of showing love to Jesus today. You know, when Jesus in today's passage tells the crowd, the poor you will always have with you, he's not saying ignore the poor. No, he cares deeply about the poor. He's saying this is a special time and place because I'm here. But, but Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, whatever we do to the poor, we do to him. So he cares deeply about the poor. So what are practical, tangible things you can do this week to care for the poor in our community? I don't know if that's a donation, if that's volunteering, if that's building relationships with someone poor in our community, but Jesus cares for the poor and he calls us to, pay, to care for the poor as well. And I love what Jesus says in verse eight, right here, she has done what she could. It's all that Jesus is asking of you today. What can you do? Not what can your neighbor do? Not what could you do if you got a raise? Not what could you do if you didn't have kids? What can you do today? And the way he says it assumes that each of us can do something, no matter how small it may be. And that's what God's going to hold us accountable for. So church, this woman's extravagant generosity, it may feel wasteful to us at first glance, but it is a beautiful act. And its extravagance, it foreshadowed the cross where Jesus would lay down his life for you and me in the ultimate gift of extravagant grace ever. And that reality of the cross, it calls for us to live with a new perspective where our lives are focused on showing extravagant generosity and love to others. It's not going to be easy. It's going to involve sacrificing the things we believe give us life. It might sometimes feel like a little part of us is dying each time we do that. But Jesus says that's the path to true abundant life and that that is beautiful. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. And we thank you that you are the ultimate giver of true, extravagant, generous love. God, I pray that you would give us this new perspective to see the beauty of extravagant generosity and sacrifice. Pray that you would make us a church that's willing to lay down our lives for one another, to love and serve one another for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.